Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. We had a treasury secretary babbling in front of cameras, stammering, literally saying, I, we might cover this, we might not, it depends where the money is. And to this day, nobody knows what is and isn't covered above $250,000. This is no way to run a banking system. It's no way to run an economy. And by the way, if you're Janet Yellen, you know you're going to get asked that question. Sort it out with your advisors before you go on camera. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Bank failures, bank regulator failures, and the repeat of every failure we saw 15 years ago sparking the GFC. It's a litany of failures that we're exploring today as we welcome back Gary Broad from Deep Knowledge Investing. Hi, Gary. Hey, Phil. Thanks for having me. Great to be speaking to you again. Yeah, great to have you back again. And you're talking to us today from Nicaragua. How's life going there? Is that the monastic cell that you're in now that you were talking about on Twitter? It is. And you know, it's amazing. I'm a big believer in the philosophy of hedonic adjustment. I've stayed in beautiful suites and five-star hotels. And it's amazing. You know, you walk in and you think, wow, this is so fantastic. And, you know, three hours later, you stop noticing. And, mm-hmm. you know, I walked into this. I, I basically, my room has brick floors, nothing on the walls. I have a bed, a small wooden desk and a nightstand and nothing else. Uh, mm-hmm. And I felt disappointed. And, you know, one day later, I stopped noticing and just got comfortable. And so here I am. But the country is beautiful. I was in Granada. Uh, I'm in Madeiras right now, which is right by San Juan del Sur. And um, it's a beautiful country. The beaches here are spectacular. And I found the Nicaraguan people to be very nice, very welcoming. Um, it's just been a terrific experience so far. Yeah, no, sounds very nice. So let's get back to celebrating failure. What was, is, is it still a bank? What the Silicon Valley Bank Corp is the official name, isn't it? Um, does it still exist? Uh, no, it was uh, taken into re- receivership by the FDIC. Basically, the, mm-hmm. the bank, uh, it was the 16th largest bank in the United States, and it was shut down by the government uh, before it failed on its own. So it, mm. was, it was going to fail either way, and the government took it into receivership. It, but it is and, gone. It is a zero, a bankrupt company. And I just should say, and I wanted to preface, preface this episode, is that um, this is about the banking collapses and the bank failures that have been happening over the last few weeks. And um, while this podcast didn't cover it as it was happening, I think it's good to go back and have a little bit of hindsight, a little bit of perspective to see what actually went wrong, especially now that the markets seem to have stabilized. So um, yeah, just tell us a little bit of the story and the background of it, please. Sure. So Silicon Valley Bank Corp, and, and by the way, I, I will tell you, Deep Knowledge Investing, we had our own interaction with the bank. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, we had our own near miss with them. But it was the 16th largest bank in the country. They were headquartered in San Francisco. 
And they were the preferred banker to many of the venture capital tech firms. Uh, They had thousands of startup firms that they were the bank for. And, you know, that was great when times were good. And I had a situation a couple of years ago when somebody who was working for me came to me and they pitched Silicon Valley Bank Corp. And, And the pitch was, okay, so you have a regular bank But because they've done all of this financing for these tech firms, sometimes they would get small pieces of equity in the firms. And so they basically had their own venture capital fund. And there was the sense that, you know, you're buying the bank and you get the venture capital fund for free and, you know, all these lottery tickets and they could be worth a fortune. And, you know, wouldn't you want to invest in the next Facebook? And I looked at this thing and realized, one, the bank was not cheap. It was expensive. It was expensive because people knew you had this venture capital portfolio. And then I I remember saying to this very smart person who was working for me, but how do you know what the value of these venture capital firms are? Like the the bank marks it on the books, but that doesn't mean you're going to realize that values are private companies. There's no mark to market. We have no idea what the bank's accounting standards are. This was two years ago that I said this. And, Mm. um, you know, the stock was hundreds of dollars at a time and it's since gone to zero. Um, now for a different reason, it wasn't the venture capital portfolio that failed, but the point is there was always a question about, in my mind at least, about the accounting at this particular mm. place. So that's, that's interesting though. It's got that kind of glamour of having the name Silicon Valley in the bank and I'm sure that would attract um, a few moths to the flame. Yeah, I mean, they were really well known. And the thing that they did well at first, which actually led to the downfall of the bank, was they found ways to lock up the money. And so Mm. let's imagine for a minute, Phil, that you were the CEO or CFO of this venture capital startup firm. And remember, you know, when I say that, everybody imagines, you know, these tiny firms and they imagine, you know, companies like, uh, you know, Apple Computer, the get started in somebody's garage, you know, or mm. in someone's Boots, basement. Bootstrapping themselves up, yeah. Yes, and and in fairness, there were companies like that, but most of the money at Silicon Valley Bank Corp was being held by gigantic tech firms who had multi-billion dollar valuations and had billions of dollars in cash at the bank. Uh, you know, more than 90% of the money held in that bank was from, you know, a, just a dozen or two dozen accounts. And so Hmm. that's where most of the money was. And what Silicon Valley would do is they wanted these firms to keep all of their money at the bank. And they would say, we will give you some extra interest, right? Or we'll give you preferred financing or in something that is particularly ominous, they would go to the executives of, of these companies and they'd say, hey, we'll give you guys a preferred rate for your personal mortgages, right? I mean, the conflict of interest here is horrendous. And what you had were these executives who theoretically should have known better and should have understood risk. And what they did was they acted like all of these freebies that they got had no cost. And anytime I feel it, you know this, and for everybody who's listening to this, we all know the old expression, if it looks too good to be true, it is. So if somebody calls you, if I call somebody and say, hey, I'd like to offer you a million dollars of free cash. Just show up and sign this piece of paper. Don't worry, you won't owe me anything. It's free. <laughs> Don't sign the paper, right? Mm. And, and so what Silicon Valley did uh, that was smart until it wasn't 
was they would offer not only the VC firms, but the executives of those firms, all of these freebies, all of these extras in order to keep 100% of their business. And, you know, if you get this great offer where somebody's saying, we're going to give you extras, freebies, it's going to be great. We'll even give you something personally under the table. You won't have to report it, right? That there's risk associated with that. And these people all acted like they had no way to know that. And, you know, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you're not expected to be an attorney or a bank executive, but if you're the CFO, of a multi-billion dollar firm with billions of dollars in the bank, you know about this stuff. You understand this. Nothing is offered to you for free. Everything that somebody offers you will come with a cost or some associated risk. And people pretended like that wasn't the case and it led to disaster. Okay. So it sounds like there was risk involved. And again, I should be prefacing this, that we're basing this actual conversation on your latest Deep Knowledge Investing monthly newsletter, which we're going to publish on the blog post for this particular episode. So listeners can have a a good read and a deep dive into what you've actually said about this. And it's a great article. I really enjoyed reading it. And the thing that you talk about mainly is about risk and particularly duration risk. And it's to do with their bond portfolio, isn't it? That's right. And a lot of your listeners have probably heard or read the term duration risk and thought, wait, I don't know what that is. And it sounds like this Mm. very complicated finance term. It's actually very simple. It's just finance people like to use complicated terminology, right? So (laughs) duration is simply... Like doctors, you know, everyone has got to have their own jargon, their own Exactly, right. Yeah. Right. We, We have our own language to pretend we know things that you don't know. But the concept is really simple and we can explain it with, you know, with a great example here. Uh, Duration simply means the length of time. And what happened with Silicon Valley was there was a change in the value of bonds that they held. So in this case, what they owned were U.S. Treasury bonds. and Very safe, very safe. Everyone would expect them to be the safest things to have your money in. And in fairness, they are. If you buy a Treasury bond that says you're going to get 2% interest, and let's say it's a 10-year bond, and for what it's worth, you can't get that, you, you get a higher rate right now, but this is an example, right? So if you buy a bond, from the government, and it's a 10-year bond at 2% interest, you will receive your 2% interest every year. And at the end of 10 years, you will receive a thousand US dollars. And so the question will be, what will a thousand US dollars be worth in 10 years? But that's a whole inflation conversation, which I'd be happy to talk to you about another time. (laughs) So to the extent that you will get paid, they are risk-free and they're considered to be risk-free. But here's the issue, Phil. That's only the case if you hold that 10-year bond to maturity. Maturity is simply a fancy word for saying for the full 10 years. If you buy a 10-year treasury bond today and you hold it for 10 years, you will get paid what you're expected to get paid and you will have paid the price you expected to and that's all fine. And so the duration risk that Silicon Valley had was they were lending, sorry, they were borrowing from people at you know, 1%, 2%, something like that. But those people could pull their money out right away. And then they were lending to the U.S. government at maybe 3%, 4% for a longer duration. And as Mm -hmm. people started to withdraw their money, Silicon Valley, the problem they had where they said, oh no, we can't hold these bonds to maturity. We actually have to sell them today at a loss. And the problem they had was 
if they could hold their bond portfolio until maturity, the bank would have been fine. But because they had to start selling at a loss, the bond portfolio was worth less than the amount of deposits that people were able to withdraw. And when that happens, you have a bankruptcy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And that's kind of like the asset backing of the bank, isn't it? That uh, these bonds are that's right. Actually, where they hold their money, it's like the the solid foundation. Well, hopefully, the solid foundation on which their fiscal strength is held. Right. And that's exactly how they ended up making the error. The mm. the bonds are risk-free if you can hold them. To uh, maturity, for, yeah. To yeah. maturity, exactly. But if you have to sell them today, you might be selling at a, a premium, a discount. The price will be what it is. And so they had a situation where the current value of their assets they were liquidating was worth less than their liabilities. And again, when that happens and you run out of equity, it's a bankruptcy. And there's been a political narrative that alleges that a change to the rules allowing mid-sized banks a little extra leeway in oversight led to this situation. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, everybody loves to blame the, the previous other side administration. <laughs> exactly, right. In this case, that is 100% nonsense. Uh, and the reason for that is those regulations weren't the reason Silicon Valley failed. It was this duration risk. It was the fact that they, they didn't understand or they knew and didn't care about the risk that they'd taken in their bond portfolio. And while the issues that we're talking about may sound complicated to somebody who is being introduced to bond math for the first time and some of this complicated finance terminology, if you're the CFO or the risk manager for the 16th largest bank in the country, th this is the kind of thing any first-year finance student would know. These people have to know this. And, and by the way, the Federal Reserve knew it. Last year, the Federal Reserve called up Silicon Valley Bank and they said, guys, we're really concerned about this. This does not look right. And the bank ignored it. Now, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't care. Maybe they were engaged focused on other things, or there's always the possibility. And, you know, this is an issue in my business as well with certain hedge fund managers and portfolio managers. People don't like to realize losses. A lot of times people don't mm. want to sell something at a loss, which would have saved the bank. They want to sit there with their fingers crossed and hope maybe I'll get bailed out of this somehow. Maybe interest rates will change. Maybe we'll get the value back. And that's a very foolish way to go through life. Fingers crossed that, you know, when the house is on fire, that it'll all be fine. And so those regulations wouldn't have caught this. That really is just a political narrative because, you know, if, if you're the Democrats in Congress, blaming Donald Trump for something is, is politically popular. But this failure was not President Trump's fault. You can blame him for a lot of other things, but he did not cause the failure of Silicon Valley Bank Corp. Now, the other thing that seems to be happening is the discussion on whether there was or was not a bailout. Was there a bailout and who's on the hook for that money? 
there 100% was a bailout. And everybody who's telling you there wasn't, they're lying in a very specific way, right? It's, it's not <laughs> just they're lying in a very, very tricky way because what they're doing is they're telling you a very specific truth, right? So imagine you have a little kid in the house and, uh, you know, that little kid, you know, eats a Milky Way candy bar before dinner and they're not supposed to. And so mom comes in and sees, you know, what's going on and chocolate on the kid's face and says, hey, did you grab a candy bar? And the kid says, I did not have a Snickers bar. Okay, well, that's true, <laughs> but you're answering the question in a very specific way. And so mm -hmm. when, when government officials tell you that there was no bailout, here's what they're actually saying, right? They're, they're not addressing the bailout. They're saying that shareholders weren't bailed out. Executives weren't bailed out. Okay, let's tell the whole truth here, Phil. That is 100% true. It's correct. The equity mm. holders, the people who own stock in SIVB, Silicon Valley Bank Corp, they got zero. They got zeroed out. They were not rescued. The executives of the company, along with all the employees of the company, were fired. They all lost their jobs. And so they say, see, there was accountability. Okay, but there was a bailout because there were billions of dollars in uninsured deposits that were somehow made whole. And to make things even worse, these firms were gigantic political donors. Now, you know, listen, I, again, if you're listening to this, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, a libertarian, a liberal, I just, whoever you are, that's fine. That's none of my business, right? My job as a finance person is just to look for the truth in it and leave my own opinions out of it. But, you know, what happened here was these firms were gigantic donors to the Democratic Party, and it was Democratic Party officials who said, okay, well, they're not insured, but we're going to make them whole anyway. And again, let's go back to the beginning of this conversation. These people took on massive risk, right? And so for anybody in the United States who's ever opened up a bank account or walked into a bank, take a look at how many times you see the sign and the lettering that says, FDIC insured $250,000. That's the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation limit. You cannot walk into a bank without seeing those words in 25 places. It is on every document. It's everywhere. These people knew that. And, and we feel we can talk about, I've put up Twitter threads about all the ways that these executives could have insured themselves, could have saved themselves, could have saved their farms. They didn't do that. They took on that risk voluntarily simply because they were getting all the extras, all the perks that we talked about before. They didn't want to give that up. And so what we have are corporations who are giant political donors who took on risk and then got money that they weren't entitled to by an illegal decree by Democratic officials. Now, if somebody wants to tell me, hey, you know, Republicans do sleazy things too to favor the donor. Yeah, I totally agree. It is a huge problem. Both parties do this nonsense and it's wrong and horrible. And I'm against all of this sleaze. In this case, these were Democratic donors bailed out by Democratic officials. When Republicans are in power, they do the same horrible, stupid things. So I'm not taking a political side on this. 
But there not only was a bailout, it's a bailout where the optics are horrendous. Is this a similar situation to what happened at um, Credit Suisse? In some ways, it is. Credit Suisse has had issues with asset quality for a really long time. Uh, If you take a look, the value of that stock has been sliding for well over a decade. Mm. It's kind of been known in the, the finance community for a really long time that they had issues with the quality of their assets. And in the case of Credit Suisse, you're talking about, you know, your national flagship bank or one of two. And so the thing that is similar there is you've got, you know, two national flagship banks. One of them bought the other one, but they did it with a government guarantee. And so basically, like we had in the U.S. and like we had in the U.S. in 2008, you had a situation where if something worked out, the stockholders and executives got paid very well. If it didn't work out, people said, oh, this is a public problem. And the losses Mm. got socialized, right? And again, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, these are different administrations, different parties. Republicans have done this. Democrats have done it. The Swiss have done it. The Americans have done it. This is an issue all over the place. But basically, if you have the opportunity to earn huge returns when something works, then you need to own the losses. And the moral hazard that we have just now in 2023 in the US in the banking system or 2023 in the Swiss banking system is the same as we had in 2008 in the US banking system, which is, you know, the profits are mine, the losses are ours. And mm. that's not a situation that A, should happen, B, is consistent with any capitalist system. And it sounds like they can hold that over the heads of government by saying, well, look, if the banking system fails, we're all screwed. That, that's right. And, you know, I was having an interesting conversation on Twitter with uh, Enrique Abiata a day ago. He's somebody I really like and respect. He's a smart guy. He's a good stock picker. Really nice. Yeah, he's, um, he's been on the podcast a couple of times. He's a, oh, great. a great character. Yeah. 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 Love, love Enrique. Uh, and he was mm. pointing out to me that, you know, he, he took issue with the letter, which I, you're, you know, graciously going to make available to your subscribers. Mm. I, I hope you all read it. But, you know, Enrique took issue with it saying, hey, you know, this really, this was a, a ballot of the banking system. People were worried about everybody pulling deposits out and holding cash or, you know, putting it in treasuries. They didn't want one bank run or three bank runs in this case to turn into 300 or 3000 and have a whole collapse of the system. And he pointed out that, you know, if we would have had this in another favorite industry like agriculture, where there are a lot of government subsidies, they would have done the same thing. You know, and my response to him was, Enrique, you're a hundred percent right. He is correct on that. But the point that I'm making is that we had a bailout in 2008. They told us this time there's no bailout. There was a bailout. People who avoided paying for insurance or avoided doing things that would have protected them in these situations didn't do so. And somebody else got stuck with the losses. That is a bailout. So I agree with Enrique. He's right. And you're right, Phil, that this is a situation where they do hold it over people's heads. They say, well, we don't want the whole system to collapse. But let me let me remind everyone. Sorry, yeah, Phil. Yeah. No, no, no remind, keep going. Keep going. But yep. let me remind everybody that the more times you do something like this, the more people realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm incentivized to engage in ridiculously risky behavior because if it works, I will make a fortune. If it doesn't work, I'll say, well, you don't want us to fail and we get bailed out. And so Mm. every time you do this, 
you send the message to the people running the system, the people running these firms, go take ridiculous risks. You'll make a lot of money or we'll cover the losses. And so when you do this again and again and again, you don't end up saving the system. You just end up with bigger and more frequent risks to the system. What they're doing, yeah, it saved things today, just like what they did in 2008, saved things then. But if there's, if nobody is ever held accountable for failure, then what you're going to get is a lot more failure. And we'll start to see these kinds of events happening more frequently and with more money on the line. So this whole we saved everybody narrative is complete nonsense. No, you just kicked the can down the road and put us in a position where we will be taking more failure risk later on. So let's imagine a world where there's Treasury Secretary Gary Broad. How would you deal with the situation? How would you disincentivize people? And we're just talking fantasy land here, of course. I I would say three things. One, let's talk about what the regulators got right. They closed Mm. down Silicon Valley Bank Corp and two other banks. That was the right thing to do. These banks had liabilities and excessive assets, and you don't want this stuff cascading. And there was failure. And the people who were held accountable were the executives, the employees, the risk managers who we've talked about, and the shareholders. Those people all ended up either out of a job or getting zero. So the regulators got that right. And let's, you know, give them a round of applause for that. That was the right thing to do. What I would have done with the depositors is I would have said, you're insured for $250,000. Now, the narrative that, and this is a false narrative, the narrative that people talked about was, oh, no, no, you can't do that because, you know, there's payroll and you don't want everybody losing their jobs. And this will all be awful. No, right? They, They made it seem like mom and pop were going to lose their savings, okay? First of all, I'm going to make this point again. You cannot walk into a bank in the United States without seeing 20 places. FDIC insured to $250,000. And there are lots of ways to either buy insurance or get around those limits. And if you want, again, we can talk about those. But when you're the CFO of a multi-billion dollar firm, you know about this, right? And if you are an employee, you know, if you're employee 17 at a venture capital startup, Again, it's the same thing. If it works, you're going to make Facebook money, right? Mm, or mm. You know, the, like you're going to make the kind of money that, you know, PayPal money, right? You'll, you'll become immensely wealthy. Well, the other side of that is if you work for uh, a startup firm without much or any revenue and no free cash flow and your fingers crossed will get bought out for hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, years in the future then you're taking that risk. And yeah, you could make Facebook money or PayPal money or something like that. But if it doesn't work, that's the risk that you take, right? Everybody has to be held accountable. And if you work for one of these firms and you want the upside, that lottery ticket of immense tech riches, then you need to take the risk of failure, including these CFOs who knew what they were doing. And again, there were, there were ways around that. So I would have simply said to people, you know, I'm sorry, but you knew it was $250,000 limit. Now, to make things even crazier, you can buy insurance. You could have bought treasury bonds at Treasury Direct, which would have been perfectly safe if you're the CFO of these firms. Or what they could have done is they could have placed their money with multiple institutions. And there are programs to do that that will manage it for you. I, I mean, I called somebody at a bank and within 
less than 10 minutes, he told me, yeah, we can cover $125 million in one account, FDIC Mm. insured. Uh, I called a client of mine. Uh, I'm not allowed to use his name, but he's at LPL. I I think they can cover by spreading deposits around something like $150 million uh, (laughs) and all of it's insured. They didn't do that because they wanted the perks of having all their money at Silicon Valley Bancorp. So this narrative that mom and pop were going to lose their savings and it wasn't fair is, is complete nonsense. These were large firms with risk managers who took risk and were never held accountable. And then the third thing that I would have done had I been treasury secretary would have been to be clear on who was and wasn't covered. And the current treasury secretary, Janet Yellen, made a mess of the whole situation. And she has this horrible deer in the headlights look when she's asked about this and basically, you know, was saying, well, we might cover your deposits. We might not. If you're at a systematically important bank, if you're, if your deposits are at a big bank, we might cover it. We probably would. If you're at a small bank, we might not. And there's all of this uncertainty. And for, again, for anyone who's listening to this, one, the market needs clarity. Two, if you have money in the bank, shouldn't you know if you're insured or not? Shouldn't you know at what limit you're insured? Shouldn't bank executives and executives of companies and mom and pop and everybody listening to this who has money in the bank, shouldn't you know what is and isn't covered? We had a treasury secretary babbling in front of cameras, stammering, literally saying, we might cover this, we might not, it depends where the money is. To this day, Nobody knows what is and isn't covered above $250,000. This is no way to run a banking system. It's no way to run an economy. And by the way, if you're Janet Yellen, you know you're going to get asked that question, sort it out with your advisors before you go on camera, right? It wasn't Mm. like somebody knocked on her door at three in the morning with a a TV camera and said, you know, Secretary Yellen, we need an answer on this. What's going on? Yeah, what's going on? (laughs) Right, no, she she got dressed, you know, put her shoes on, walked into a room where she knew there were going to be cameras. Like, she had to know that question was coming. Her parent advance, Mm. give people clarity. And how do you get to be a, a senior executive for the U.S. government for decades without knowing that you need to give people clarity, without knowing that when the cameras are on, you need to explain to people, this is our policy. And there even was uh, like a two-day period where the Treasury Department was saying one thing, the Federal Reserve was saying something else. Nobody was saying anything clear. Answers were shifting. And, you know, listen, if if you want to cover everything, I, I will disagree with that decision, but then people should know this is what we're on the hook for. And so if somebody, if a bank goes under and they say, okay, you're covered and your insurance company doesn't have the money to cover it, that's a scam. If the government Mm. prints money to cover it and steals from the rest of us in order to cover it, that's a scam. Again, this is no way to run a a banking system. Which brings us neatly to the topic of inflation and uh, back to the real world where Janet Yellen is the treasury secretary, not Gary Broad. And um, why do you call Janet Yellen the Marie Antoinette of our inflation? Well, first, Phil, let's, uh, that's a hilarious line, but let's give credit. That one comes from Lax Ganapathy from Unicus Research. Lax is a phenomenal researcher, really smart person. 
She has a great sense of humor. Uh, the best thing I can tell you about her is she is subversive. When you talk to her, <laughs> you think she's going in one direction and she gets you teed up. But, you know, when she delivers, it's not going where you think it is. And so she was the one who coined the line. We always give her credit when we use it. But the reason it's a, a phenomenal line is because Janet Yellen was saying her biggest regret in her previous role was that we didn't get more inflation. Again, for everybody listening to this, how does it help you if things cost more? If the loaf of bread that costs you $2, you know, you go to the, the store next year and it costs you $220 or $250, how does that make your life better? Higher prices do not improve your life. And, you know, if anybody wants to raise their hand and say, no, 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 I want higher prices. I want to pay more. Send me an email. I can't wait to hear from you because <laughs> that will be a great interaction. Or, you know, call Phil. You should be the, the next guest on the show. So to go from the, back to a little history, you know, Marie Antoinette, the, the wife of Louis XVI of France, you know, when she heard the peasants were revolting because they didn't have bread, they didn't have food, her answer was let them eat cake. She refused to see the problem and, and acted like their suffering, you know, was so irrelevant that, well, if you don't have bread, you might as well eat cake, right? If you don't have a shack to live in, go live in a mansion, right? You know, if, if your car doesn't work, wait, get a yacht and sail there. And it's a ridiculous way to behave. And it's a ridiculous way to talk about something that makes people's lives worse. And so when Locke says she's the Marie Antoinette of our inflation, when you have a treasury secretary saying we need more inflation, and my regret is not creating more inflation, it is incredibly insensitive. It's foolish. It's stupid. It's bad policy and bad politics. Okay, Gary. Well, thanks very much for joining me to explain this. And like I said, we're going to be um, linking your blog post, or actually we'll publish your blog post in this blog post for this episode so people can see the, the full story behind it. But um, Gary, as always, enjoy Nicaragua and great to talk to you again. Thanks, Phil. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.